Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Courtney. And welcome, welcome to, to our, our Eco Freak, freak Out. out. <laughs> Each week we take on a new sustainability challenge, discuss their impact on both our world and our lives, and try to figure out just how sustainable is sustainability. Welcome everyone. Today we have a super exciting interview with David Hawkinson, who is the owner operator at Jubilee Farms in Carnation, Washington. He is going to be talking to us today about food waste and his perspective on it. Uh, Jubilee is a family farm in Carnation, Washington since 1989. They provide the greater Seattle community with a diverse selection of fresh produce, grass-fed and pastured meat pastured eggs, and stone ground flour, all of which are cultivated using organic farming practices. Uh, at Jubilee, they say that you get to know your farmer, your food, and each other, which I love. Uh, they are a part of the PCC Farmland Trust since 2012. Um, they also do a CSA, which is a Community Supported Agriculture subscription program, uh, which members of the public support the farm by committing to purchase shares of its produce for a season. Um, so by being a member of the CSA, you enjoy their fresh food, but you also get to engage with the land and the people that provide that food. So that's very cool. Uh, welcome, David. Welcome. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for joining us. Yes. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, so what's your day look like today? What are you up to? Well, it's really snowy and cold. So I started off by blowtorching the water lines to get the ice off so the cows could have water. That's kind of fun. Um, you know, I, what, you know, people ask me like, what do you like about farming? And um, like, I would say it's the variety of tasks. So, you know, if I had to defrost the water lines every day, that'd get pretty old, but every once in a while, it's kind of fun and new and different. Um, so, you know, like each, each season has its own set of jobs and tasks that need to get done. And if you ever get tired of one, it's usually not that long until the next season comes. Like by the end of August, I'm tired of irrigating. Like it's just, it's a grind, <laughs> but you only do it for a couple months. And if I had to do it every day, that'd be miserable. So yeah, it's nice. Um, maybe it's, maybe there's other jobs like that. I imagine there are, you know, um, you know, I heard an interview this, wow, I'm really in the weeds already, but here, here's an interview I heard with a guy, um, uh, on a podcast called The Daily, probably one of the biggest podcasts out there, really. But anyway, oh yeah, there, he was talking about how he didn't want to go back to his job cooking because uh, he made the same meal every day for years. <laughs> and I never thought about that. Like you're making, even if it's a really nice restaurant that makes really nice meals, you always have your standards that you're making every night, and that can get kind of boring. And if I had to, even even fun jobs like. I don't know. Um, yeah. Like uh, planting carrots or whatever. It's not, it's fun to do, but if I had to do it every day, you know, it, it wouldn't be that fun. That's very true. So, yeah. So farming is about yeah, it's that variety of tasks that you that you get that's really fun. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I was excited to talk to you because like not only do you have the farming perspective and the perspective on like where our food comes from, but you're also very plugged in oh, to like the news and the world as a whole and just like philosophically. So, yeah. I'm plugged into the news, but not technology, apparently. Um, it was quite a journey for me learning all about how to download stuff. And um, 
<laughs> and, and say allow for my microphone and so forth. But in any case, yeah, um, yeah uh, I do listen to the news. Probably, I don't know if I listen to it too much. Sometimes I get a little burnt out on the news, and then I listen to sports talk. And I have like a oh, yeah. I do it old school, like on the radio. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is there anything that you would add to that introduction about you or about the farm? Um, just like. Uh, that was a great introduction. Why you became a farmer. Oh, why I became a farmer. Man. <laughs> okay. So when I was very young, um, I fell in love with farming when I was like six. This is like when, when I was six years old, I had to write like what I wanted to be when I grew up and. I wrote, I want to be a farmer. So it's been kind of there forever. Um, I think my, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a generational farm, right? So I'm the second generation. Uh, we moved here when I was four. So I don't have a lot of memories of other things. Um, and I always kind of wanted to do it. And I feel like of my three other siblings I have, I was always the one that wanted, that always kind of liked it a little bit more than the others. Um, I'm sure my parents were like, well, you didn't work very much as a kid, you know, <laughs> like maybe they have a different perspective. I loved it, but you know, um, as a kid, uh, you know, farm work can be, it's hard. You know, a lot of times we have like a, a vision of what farm life is like with, with, with kids pitching in and helping. But a lot of farm work is done when it's really hot and kids melt like, like butter, you know, out, and out in the sun. And it's hard when you're like eight to be like, hey, it's 90 degrees. You want to go uh, hoe corn? No, they don't. They do it for like five no. minutes and then they're just like falling down. And and, you know, and in their mind, they've been working forever. You know, they, oh, my goodness, yeah. I'm slaving away out here. But it's like, no, no, no. In any case, you know, I always loved it. And like I said before about, like, the variety of tasks, that that's really what kind of draws me to it. Um, you know, a lot of it's kind of, uh, kind of creativity that when you have a, a piece of property and a lot of tools, you know, it's like having a canvas with a lot of different brushes. You know, you can make a lot of different decisions about how you're going to do things. And um, there's a lot of creativity involved. Um, yeah, so I, I prepare, but but um, but the best laid plans always go to waste, right? So, <laughs> like for example, last summer when in June we had the the heat dome, right? And 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 like suddenly we were just blasted, and that and that wasn't something yeah. people were like, oh, that's gonna happen. If it happened every year at the same time, you would plan for it. But the best thing you can do is is be. Uh, 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 flexible and and kind of spontaneous and be able to kind of figure out kind of what's going on so there's that kind of creativity that kind of problem solving like we need to get this job done the tool we use to get it done broke so what are you going to do now yeah um I like that kind of problem solving and uh and I like that there's kind of a community of, of people that have kind of gathered or coalesced around the farm um people that you know like mechanics and handymen and people who um, like there's this guy named Gary and he's 78 years old and he can do anything. Um, every farm needs a Gary. That's great. Right? And he's, he's not just Gary for Jubilee. He's Gary for a lot of different places. A lot of people, um, uh, employ his services because he's very knowledgeable. And so it's nice that you can get people like, I don't have the answer to every single problem, but I can usually reach out and find somebody who does. And, um, mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun. There's a pretty big, uh, community of farms right where you're at, yeah. right? So when my when my parents bought the farm in 89, um, a lot of farms were going out. And actually, the farm that we purchased was an old dairy farm that had been on the, the market more or less for a couple of years. And, um, you know, when my dad bought the farm, he uh, and I don't know why that's a bad phrase. Bought the farm always kind of comes off as like a bad thing. Oh, really? Huh. Well, have you ever heard that? Like, oh, he bought the farm. It's like a, a euphemism for death. 
You guys never, okay. Well, anyway, every time no. I, I think of that. And, um, so no, he bought the farm in 89 and people were like, you'll never make it farming. You'll never make it farming. Um, you wow. know, all the farms are going out and, and the farmers around him were, I mean, like they might not have been like openly hostile, but they weren't exactly like excited because a lot of them were coming to the end of their farming cycles. Like the farm, mm -hmm. their farm business plan wasn't working maybe, or maybe they were just getting naturally near the age of retirement. And sometimes people, when they, you know, imagine you're like, a, uh, I don't know. Let's use a, a sports example. You're a, you're a quarterback who's starting to age out, and you get this, and, and your team drafts a really, you know, promising young rookie. But you're like, I don't really feel like helping you. Like I'm kind of jaded by the whole process. So you know, when my dad yeah. took over, he was 38, and um, you know, never farmed before, but he didn't get a lot of help. And I was going somewhere with all that, but I don't really remember now. But in any case, <laughs> there was a lot of. You know, he, he kind of took over the farm and had to try a lot of different things without a lot of help from other people. Because most people thought, hey, farming's done. It's done in yeah. the Cincinnati Valley. And um, he, he, he played around with a lot of different options. He, he had to, you know, he stayed employed outside of the farm for the first 10 years. So from 89 to 99, he also was a fisherman wow. in Alaska. So in Alaska is, um, you know, he, he owned a boat and a permit up there and fished uh, sockeye salmon. And that's kind of how the farm was supported. And, you know, that's he, a lot of work. Yeah. And the problem with the sockeye salmon <laughs> is that it's done through uh, uh, end of June, July, which is kind of prime farming time. So eventually yeah. he had to literally jump ship and become a farmer full time. And at that point, they had my, my mom and him had had uh, decided to pursue the community supported agriculture that they heard about at a um at a uh, at a conference in California in the mid '90s, mm. um, I'm sure that's one of the times I was away at Grandma's for the weekend. Um, <laughs> you know, like you, you get dropped off at Grandma's house as a kid, and then you you don't really know what your parents are doing, but you find out later yeah. in life. Like, like um, oh, that's what they were oh, doing. They were at a like, how did they do that with four kids? Oh, because we were at Grandma's. Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> uh, in any that's case, that's so cool. So they've been doing the CSA since like mid '90s. Yeah, 95. So we've been, we've, we've done it for, um, yeah, the farm's been around for 30 years. We've done, we, our CSA has been about 25 years now. And um, so the CSA is where people kind of put money up front to buy a share of your produce. So mm -hmm. it's not like buying ownership in the farm. So it's not like a stock in that way, but like you buy the dividends of the farm if you want to think about it in like business terms. So you're buying mm -hmm. the things that the farm produces. And so if the farm produces a lot of different vegetables, we have a vegetable, fruit, berry, grain, CSA, technically, but mostly it's vegetables, right? That's what mm -hmm. really well and dependably and all that. So people get a share of that. And it's your job as the farmer to make sure that they're happy with their share. So if you mm -hmm. have a good year and you grow lots of things really good, people will be happy. If you decide you're only going to grow beets and cabbage because that's what grows really well in the Snoqualmie Valley, everybody will be mad. And there is not a year that goes by that people don't say, um, I always ask people at the end of the year, what do you want more of? What do you want less of? And people say less cabbage, less beets, more strawberry, right? Oh, um, yeah. So, you know, I always tried. I'm like, I, oh, this year I really tried. I was like, okay, we're going to keep those strawberries really weed free. Um, and what happened is we didn't end up weeding the beans very well. And uh, the strawberries looked great. And the beans weren't good. And anyway, so there's always like, stuff and, uh, you know, but I figured, I figured people like strawberries more than beans. Um, but what, you know, um, so it's always kind of a trade off, but, but also like, yeah. so growing a variety of things, right? So 
my dad used to tell me when I was little, you know, he's like, oh, there's big money in radishes. Um, cause he was learning about farming. So he would like read books and like, and, and plant and he had to kind of figure this out on his own. And now circling back to a long time ago, our conversation, he said, there's a lot of farmers in the area. Now there are, and there's a, mm. a whole, there's a whole organism called the, you know, the Snoqualmie Valley tilth or the snow Valley tilth as it's now is that kind of helps mentors farmers. There's a whole, um, oh, wow. there's a whole, there's a whole incubator farming program where they have, you can join their program. It's, they have tool sharing. They have a mentor farmer. You get like a quarter acre. Um, and uh, I think my buddy Sean uh, does that. Um, um, Sean Statman, he, and, and he's been doing that for a while. And, and there's, there's a lot of things that kind of help nurture farmers because a lot of people want to go into farming, but it's a big jump to take without the knowledge to do it. Yeah. Um, I'm fortunate. Like I'm like the luckiest person in the farming community from my perspective anyway, because I was, I was born into it. And um, I've never taken a yeah. class or anything, but I grew up around it and I know the land and, and, um, I think Michelle is ready to move up here and join that farming. Yeah. Coalition. <laughs> oh, I, Michelle, I think Michelle's ready to move on. Stop talking, David. <laughs> okay. So. No, no. She, she was just nodding profusely. Like, yes, I want yes. to, I want to do that. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> we've had, we've had people work on the farm that have gone off to start their own farms. Um, one down in New Mexico, uh, and he's got a huge farm down there now. And, um, and another, uh, another guy is right down the road from me we're the same age and you know we've been kind of farming as uh, around each other and near each other and with each other and we share you know tools and ideas and I call them all the time um uh, to bug them so about me. like um I'm like hey do you cover this with Rime or do you leave it out and he'll tell me and I just kind of copy him and do it <laughs> he's pretty free with information I'd be Ryan um Ryan Letteniger from uh Steel Wheel so he's a really useful resource and I call a lot of people with questions um because like I say, I don't like I have a lot of experience and I and I know how to do a fair amount of things, but I don't have you know. There's very rarely is there like one way to do things, and sometimes there can be kind of a you know you're not quite sure what to do. <laughs> and, and yeah. Enough, the resources online are great, uh, but not really applicable to every locale. And since like we live in a floodplain, and I've never seen a book or a good resource on how to farm in a floodplain. My dad. Ooh, maybe you could write one. Yeah, maybe That's I could write one. Right I now. don't know. Let me get a little more experience, and and uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm ready to write a book yet. My dad wrote a book, but it ended up being a little bit more autobiographical about farming, not so much about like how tos and wherefores, but um, but kind of like the the personal journey. But um, Neat. yeah. So in any case, I kind of lost my train of thought, but yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. So I would love to get your take on food waste. Oh yeah. Um, Cause we've been doing a monthly challenge basically like every week we're doing uh, either like assessing our food waste or like trying to cut down our food waste. Or we did one week where we kind of outreach to other people about food waste. Um, yeah. And like, we've learned that like 30 to 40% of all food in the U S is just thrown in the garbage. So in your opinion like seeing the supply chain from the beginning what is the biggest way that we can help eliminate food waste as consumers or um, like what is the biggest culprit that you've seen in the supply chain oh my goodness um i don't i <laughs> that's a tough <laughs> one that's a tough one um yeah i mean food waste is important right i mean every you know let's say you uh buy a pound of carrots from the store and you have them in your house and you let them get all rubbery and bendy after a couple months and you toss them and mm -hmm. you know, like yeah so that represents a fair amount of 
energy that has gone into those that bunch of carrots um, that is now going to be kind of not used. Um, sometimes I tell people out in the field, um, you know, like I, I try to take like a macro perspective on it, like really get out there and be like, listen, the earth doesn't waste anything. So like that carrot energy will eventually be reabsorbed. But we're talking about like geological time. If it goes into the dump, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's not it's 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 lost to us in the next few hundred years. And and honestly, like I have a hard time having a perspective that's much beyond that. Like mm. you don't want to get too far out there because eventually the sun just burns up and we all are toast anyway. Right. So let's <laughs> yeah. kind of off that a little bit. So let's think about what's going to help us right now. What helps us right now is, is obviously, I mean, like there's a lot of things that have really helped food waste, right? Um, mm -hmm. In the last hundred years, this, this amazing kind of process, and I say amazing because it's kind of mind boggling, is that we went from being predominantly rural to predominantly urban, and not by a little bit, but by a lot, right? So if you look back, 40% of the American population was farmers about, about 100 years ago, and 200 years ago, it was more like 70%. Um, and then still, most people lived in, in rural areas. We need to go back even further, you know, to like, you know, 15 or 1400s, it's like 90% or 94%, 95, you know, you start getting really high percentages. Once the industrial revolution happens and a little bit of urbanization happens, you get more people moving to cities and, and working in factories and so forth. But, but even up until, you know, in, in, into the 20th century is still a big, a huge chunk. And now that, now that's around 2% or 1%, depending how you count what's a farm. I think the USDA counts $1,000 worth of agricultural pro pr production every year counts as a farm, which is oh, pretty small. That's pretty, that's a pretty, pretty small. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's like, that's like saying you raise a few cows and, and you sell them at the end of the year, or like you let somebody come on and cut hay on your 40 acres and they pay you a grand to, to do it. And then you count as a farm. To me, I mean, I, I'm not going to say like who's a farmer and who's not a farmer, but based on like money, it's, it's, but like, um, and my point is, is like if a lot of the, that kind of small farming is, is counted as farming as part of that 2%, I mean, that's so we're talking about really producing farms as being even probably a, a or production minded farms, I should say, um, are probably yeah. a smaller percentage. Um, so it's not that it's not that the smaller farmers aren't producing or, or that kind of farming is not producing. I didn't mean to be that say that, but um, no, it's just like the the. Um the bulk of everything like yeah. is coming. Yeah. is not coming from yeah. smaller farms. It's coming from, you know, yeah. pesticides and all that junk. So yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, the, the, you know, so we had a lot of people lived out right by their food sources. So, you know, a lot of people grew their own vegetables, but would buy like commodity crops. So like if you had an acre, uh, you know, you had like a little homestead or something and, and you would buy probably your flour, your salt, your, you know, your bigger items that, you, you know, that you can't really grow or harvest on your own very easily. But most people grew their own greens and, and even raised like maybe their own, own pigs and that kind of stuff. So what I'm saying is like people used to be a lot closer, just proximity to food production. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so food waste was probably, you know, less likely to happen because you're right there. But in some ways, yeah. food also, you know, was harder to store without electricity, right? So deep freezes, that's amazing. You know, having the ability to put something in a freezer preserves a lot of food. Yeah. So, yeah. In some ways, you know, technology has helped the 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 large what i was getting at there with the large movement away from farmland to to cities has made a longer supply chain which is more 
fragile. I mean, ask any invading army, the longer you get away from your supply depot, the harder it is to maintain that line, right? So if you have cities, which are largely um, dependent on these vast supply lines, and I think we've all kind of learned that over the course of the pandemic with supply chain issues, and you're like, ah, you know, it turns out the just-in-time yeah. model is kind of a, a tenuous one, and you imagine if, when food were to come under that kind of that kind of pressure, uh, cities, you know, they, they probably give you an idea of like, cities have about enough food in the warehouses for about a week to, you know, if you think about like New York City, 10 million people, it's like how much food oh, if, God, they, yeah. if I can stop, that'd be a problem. And, and, and Hollywood makes movies about that sort of thing, right? You know, like, yeah, that's something I didn't really think about. It's just like the physical proximity to farms, right. like, and how fragile that is, like stuff is dying on the way, like, right. you have to toss it at the farm, you have to toss it on the truck before it goes to the grocery store. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, there's all those kinds of things that, that, that when, when people were removed from it, it, it got, weird. Mm. it got weird. <laughs> there's food waste in the system. Obviously there, we've had technological kind of uh, capacity to try to preserve that food with refrigeration and all of that um, food out in the fields. You know, that one's a little bit more complicated. I figure if I pick kale and the kale is 50% of, of the leaves are below standard, let's say, and I throw them on the ground. Now, the question is, is that wasted food or is that feeding the soil? So mm. the soil needs to eat. And um, I think of the soil as being like a stomach. It's kind of gross mm. to think about it that way. But I think of it as being like a stomach. It's 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 a lot like our stomachs. It's... um. It's uh, it's full of these little microorganisms that digest organic matter and then feed it to plants. Plants don't get energy out of the soil; they are fed it by microorganisms. In the same mm. way that our own stomach flora, uh, you know, exists independently of us. So we have little, you know, a whole biome in our gut that kind of feeds us. We mm -hmm. swallow the food down; they digest it and and they break it down and provide us with the energy. So, and they're totally independent of us. When we die, they live on for a little while until we stop feeding them, I guess, you know? But yeah. um, so the soil is the same way. They need food to feed plants. Yeah. And, um, and so when you throw, you know, organic matter like bad kale down on the, on the ground, that food, that, that, that kale leaf will eventually, all the nutrients in it will be processed through the soil and become the next round of crops. That's yeah. so cool. That's such I a cool way of listening. Yeah. yeah, Michelle loves soil. <laughs> I love soil, yeah. Well, it's fascinating. And and we thought we understood it 100 years ago when, when fertilizer companies stum you know, stumbled across kind of the NPK farming model, which is the, let's think about the big three things that plants need, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, and, and then crank those out mechanically um, or, or chemically and, and see, you know, look at the results. And it's true that those kinds of things can modify the soil and make make results. It's like um, if you're if you're a really hungry person and you're like, ah, I could really go for some food, and someone you know herds a cow over to you and said, look, it's food. Like a space alien trying to feed a human and be like, look, I gave you a cow, that's food. You eat cows, and you're like, yeah, I can't really eat this. Or gives you a, a frozen pound of ground beef. Let's even make it easier. Yeah. Well, I can't eat it the way it is. I got to cook it. I got to prepare it and then I can eat it. And, and plants are the same way. Like, you know, um, if you give them fertilizer right off the bat, like it's kind of it's, it's prepared, it's ready, but it's not it's not complete. 
So, mm. um, and it's, and, and think about it this way. I had a fertilizer salesman tell me this, and this is this, I mean, this guy's job was to sell me fertilizer. And he said, how much, how many pounds are in an acre of soil? If you just took the top three inches, it's like a million pounds. I mean, it's a lot of pounds and you're going to add 2000 pounds of fertilizer to that acre. What, what percentage is that? It's really tiny. So there is a lot of nitrogen, there's a lot of potassium, there's a lot of phosphorus in the ground that isn't accessible to plants. Mm. It's in that form that they can't digest. And so you can buy yeah. fertilizer that presents the, the, the minerals that are in the form that plants can digest, i.e. the soil microbes can transfer that really quickly. The other way to approach it is to increase the, the soil's health. And over time, and even just in the last 20 years, we've come to understand and measure soil health a lot differently than just looking at the inert matter of the soil. What you really, what, what really is, makes soil good or not is, is the microbial activity in the ground because there's so much nitrogen in the ground, but if it's not accessible, if it hasn't been broken down, then it's not really, um, it's not available. So compost, healthy soil, that's what's going to really make that stuff yeah. available. I love like the perspective of, you know, you're really not wasting any food on the farm. It's just going back into the energy of the food. Healthy soil also stores more carbon, which is really good for the climate crisis. <laughs> and oh. um, there's actually a documentary I watched called The Need to Grow, where they went all into the soil, like soil health and just how important soil is. And um, there's this whole article I read recently of our farm soil crisis we have, which is a very interesting topic too. Um, yeah, so I just love this whole topic of soil health. <laughs> <laughs> well, me too. And and a lot of it is like you know it can be a little bit hard to measure sometimes. You wanna you wanna you wanna find a way in the which if you're if you're like we do we we put out hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of tons of compost on our on our fields every year trying to boost microbial life. And that's a difficult thing to measure with, with kind of standard uh, soil testing. So the standard mm -hmm. soil testing is you, you gather samples from an acre, you send it off to a lab, and they tell you what's in it. But there, there are developing tests now that can kind of measure microbial activity instead of just the inert, you know, matter within it. So, um, yeah, yeah, so that, that's all important stuff. So, you know, you know if we were to... Yeah. So harvesting, when you're walking through a field and you and you pick something and it's not good, you throw it back on the ground. Is that, you know, and, and, and it will work itself back into the soil. You probably lose a little bit to the air, some of the nutrients like uh, mm. I have a technical word for it, but I can't remember right now. But also plants are drawing a lot of stuff in out of the air. It's the, the whole the whole system of how fertility works is a really fascinating one. And I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big believer that farms, uh, uh, the four F's of the farm, you got food, fiber, flowers, fertility. Those are kind of the three F's that, oh. that or four F's, you know, those are the things you produce. And in a season where you grow, you're growing your food or your fiber or your flowers and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then, and that's in the cycle of growth. And then in the cycle of, uh, of uh of the winter or the the kind of decay time is when you get your fertility so uh as plant matter breaks down in the soil that's part of the decay process and a lot of these things happen you know at the same time or congruous it's just in the winter i'm really focused on compost and that's kind of building yeah. time. that is so cool you're not like 
just focused on the single thing, like the carrot that you're giving, that you're giving to people. You're focused on actually the farm, the, the soil, the like keeping, keeping everything going long-term. You're always like 10 steps ahead of yourself. Well, I hope so. I hope so. But (laughs) that's what what they're talking about when they talk about the whole farm organism, when they talk about the whole Mm -hmm. organism, what they're talking about is, is how, um, you know, if, if you're just focused on making carrots, that's, that's fine. Um, but nothing comes from nothing. Everything comes from somewhere. So where does the carrot come from? You can buy the carrot in, i.e. I buy my seeds in. You can buy your fertility in. Um, you can buy your labor in. You can buy your fuel in. You can buy all the stuff in. And then what is left is the dirt becomes basically, you know, like a holding place for the seeds and, you know, um, and um, that. But I, I think that a farm productivity focusing um, on the also the growth or the production of fertility on the farm is really important um, because without the production of fertility in the long run, you also run up with this. Why is it dangerous to uh, to to uh, centralize all your food production and and put it on these vast kind of uh, um, long supply chains? Well, if there's a breakdown in the supply chain, people are going to be left hanging, and food's a pretty important thing. It's right up there yeah. with water. Food, water, shelter. Those are the three big ones that we all need. And food and water, by the way, are more important than shelter. In the long, you know, obviously you don't live long without shelter either. You know, Mm -hmm. cows are so tough and people are so weak. Um, Like my, the cows, I I was just in Montana and you're driving through on on 90 and I got the heat cranked and then I see cows and it's negative two and they're standing out in the field. And like, if I stand out there, I'm done. And I got like a coat on, you know, anyway. So yeah. um, I guess my point is, is that food's really important and without fertility, you don't have food. And, and you guys can look this up. Um, there's, you know, I look for this kind of stuff. It jumps out at me, but a lot of people probably pass it over. But there's, there's been stuff in the news recently about, um, about uh, uh, fertilizer shortages because of supply chain issues. So factories that kind of produce fertilizer are like, oh, I can't get this one key ingredient. So I'm going to, you know, my, fact- my, my, fer- my fertilizer output's going to be down. And um, so the idea of, of being able to produce on your own place, the fertility mm-hmm. that it takes to build that. So when I look at my big compost pile, I think, hey, there's next year's cabbage, there's next year's corn, there's next year's That's pumpkin. That's so cool. Is that kind of like in line to like circular farming? Is that what it's called? Where it's like... Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of different ways. And sometimes, I mean, it used to be like organic farming and that's kind of what they meant. And now organic farming means like, here's a set of rules of, of what you can and cannot put in the ground or what you can and cannot use. Um, that might be considered, you know, like a noxious chemical. And then there was kind of like, uh, you know, uh, like the whole farm organism farming, or now it's, I think they refer to it as regenerative farming. Um, it's all about the same thing. It's all about the the idea of of making a farm, yeah, a closed loop. And mm. not under any kind of illusions, it's probably not possible to be completely closed. Like, I don't think there's ever been a society that hasn't been up for trading, right? Like, you think about, you know, True. people. I think it was like Barbara King Sullivan, right, did the experiment where she was going to, you know, only eat within like a certain amount of miles from her house. But then she she had a few cheats, right? She gave herself 10 yeah. things, chocolate, coffee, you know, and, and, and it's true, like across across time, I mean, people have always traded for things. So, you know, would we be able, I mean, sometimes it's like you look at your soil and you're like, I need boron. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going to get boron unless I just buy it, you know, like right. some places <laughs> lousy with boron and they've got it for sale, you know, and yeah. 
And, and so you, but, but you don't want to, I mean, we could produce without these little kind of things. What we're kind of doing is by, by doing some added additives to our soil and trying to figure out really balance it well um, is to, uh, kind of maximize productivity. But the core of the, of the fertility project is kind of this on farm. That's where, why, why we do cows largely. I mean, cows themselves, I mean, I don't want to, Maybe other people are, are smarter than me and are making a lot of money on cows. I haven't figured out how to make money on cows. Um, <laughs> they largely break even, and uh, but what what but they're not just there to make meat. They're there to for the fertility and the in the in the in the whole farm organism. You know, we've done carbon you know uh, studies on our farm to, to find our our farm is largely a carbon sink, but only because of the cows. Ironically, because cows tend to be big producers of of uh, of greenhouse gases. But it's the pasture land that they eat on that, that sinks carbon. So one of the worst things you can do is till the soil for carbon, i.e. So when you hit the ground with a tiller, it breaks up all the, all the soil structure and releases carbon into the air. So when I go out and plow, which I do, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it is fun to plow. And I know it's not like good for the environment, but it's still really fun to do. Um, <laughs> just like driving fast is fun. It's, not, it's dangerous. But anyway, um, so... Uh, <laughs> So yeah, you know, you think like, okay, um, you know, when you break the ground up to plant vegetables, there's a lot of carbon that goes into the air. Um, pasture land captures carbon out of the air because the grass is using that carbon to grow and it's putting it down into its roots. So as high as the grass grows, that's how long their roots grow. And then when the cows come along and eat the grass, they chomp it down and then the roots pair themselves. So they die off and they go mm -hmm. into the soil. So that's how car carbon on a kind of a, a uh, it's a very slow process, but that's how carbon is kind of captured uh, in, the, in, in nature. So it, we have about 80 to 90 acres of pasture land compared to about 15 to 20 uh, intensively farmed vegetable acres. So that's probably a good ratio. And then we use the, the hay and the cows that we, that, we, you know, that we cut on the fields and we take them into the barn and we we feed them all the hay and we put bedding down and then all that kind of stuff, all their waste and all their bedding mixes together to become compost that goes into kind of feed those other 15, 20 acres. So it's kind mm -hmm. of kind of that system of how it, how it works together um, to, to one feeds the other. And like Wendell Berry said, uh, and he's great. Anytime you want to quote, look up Wendell Berry. That guy was a firebrand and uh, he said a lot of controversial things. He's also a genius. Um, you know, he was talking about like, you know, look at, you know, uh, industrial farming took a good solution and made two problems, right? If you separate animals and, and plants, you know, you got to figure out a way to fertilize your plants and you got to figure out what to do with all the manure that cows produce when you put a hundred thousand of them in a lot. Um, mm -hmm. You got to figure out what to do with it. And in and, and, and smaller farms that, uh, or just farms that combine those two things. And by the way, the government really doesn't want you to have farm, have plants and animals on the same farm. They really don't like really? it. Um, so there's this thing called Food and Safety Modernization Act, FISMA, and um, and I and I volunteered us. It it's been around for a while. They haven't fully implemented it. Um, and uh, they I volunteered us to uh, to be to be the training site for FISMA inspectors um, because they oh. said if I did that. Um, you know, they'd put us at the bottom of the list for being inspected. So I had them all come through and I talked to them and I showed them and, and, and I asked them at the end, did, did we pass? And they said, well, technically we can't tell you because 
you know, this was just a, a dry run. I was like, yeah, but did we pass? And they were like, oh yeah, you're fine. I was like, okay, good. Cause I, you know, like if you're, if I'm doing something wrong, go ahead and tell me, I don't want to get, you know, any, I don't want to hurt anybody. And that's, that's something that's always in the back of my mind. But the big thing is like, they want animals and plants separate, right? Because animals can carry pathogens and if pathogens get on produce, then you've got a problem. Mm. They, they really want you to have a the farm food safety plan of how you're going to keep animals separate from the plants. Like if you have a tractor that you're using to clean out a barn, you can't go use that tractor to go harvest carrots. So, oh, or you gotta wash it. so like, you know, there's all like, if you got manure on the tractor tires and you're driving out into a lettuce field that people are going to be harvesting the next day, there can be cross contamination. So you think about, you know, and that's like a really, I never thought about that. Yeah, so it's like, you know, what what happens when, you know, how are you going to keep the cows out of the lettuce field? Like you got, I mean, okay, obviously you have a fence, but they want you to actually write it out and say, here's what we're doing. Here's how we're mitigating risk. Here's how, here's how we do this. No one's ever asked to see my plan, by the way. I did write it up. It is like, six, <laughs> you're ready just in case. <laughs> they, had me sit, wow. they had me sit down in a, in this nice, uh, like uh, room in Bellevue, in like a Bellevue uh, hotel. I felt so out of place. It was a really nice conference room and uh, it was like eight hours of slides. It was, it was murder. <laughs> I haven't been in a classroom setting in a long time and um, I could pay attention for the first hour and then I kind of zoned, but, um, but I have all the slides. They gave them to us all on hard copy. So I went through it all later, remembered, looked at my notes. I did take notes and then I went through and wrote my farm safety plan. No one's ever asked to see it, but in any case, that's kind of the challenge. Right? I love the idea of like farmers doing homework. I don't know why. That's yeah. just so funny to me. That's what, that's what the winter months are for, right? That's what I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing, um, you know, during the off season is kind of tending all those things. Cause when, when it comes to the growing season, I'm, I'm on and I'm, I'm on a tractor pretty much all the time, which is what I love about farming. My first word was tractor. Um, so oh, I that's adorable. That. It's adorable <laughs> until you think about how my parents felt. Um, oh no. Not mom or dad. Come on now. They're like, okay, well, I guess tractors are really cool, though. So they're cool, and and now I now I drive them all the time. But um, but yeah, my point is, is like, hey, you know, what we want to have is kind of we got to realize that plants and animals belong together, and that one powers the other, and they kind of and it's cyclical, right? Because cows eat plants, um, but they also provide masses amounts of fertility for plants. And there's yeah. really two ways to get food. You can plant food and harvest what grows, or you can send animals out to eat what's already growing. And, um, and I think a combination of both. As a country, we probably eat too much meat. Um, but, you know, growing vegetables, there's also a huge kind of cost to that as well, as far as tilling soil. And, um, oh, you know, interesting. You, when you till a thousand acres for corn and then you harvest that corn and drive it over to the feedlot and feed it to the cows. That's incredibly energy intensive. And there's yeah. an economic reason to do it because fuel's so cheap. Fuel replaced human labor and made everything cheap, and that's how all this stuff came to tend to happen. Because if you can do all this work on a on a gallon of fuel, that's you know even right now it's what four bucks for a gallon of diesel. That diesel yeah. can do so much work, so much more than a human can, and humans are expensive. So if it's like, hey, one person can farm all these cows uh, and get them to get them to feed really quickly. The problem the problem is that we've economically incentivized kind of this uh, this this horrible uh, system that that is really energy intensive. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 there are food risks. I'm not trying to say there's no food risks of having animals on farms, but there is there's kind of a bias against it that has been kind of put into the mechanism of how the government operates and and the kind of our our view of things. 
we have a view of farms being like an old McDonald farm where everything's all together, but in practice, that's tougher to that's tougher to get. Um, yeah, they make you jump okay. through a lot of hoops for it. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of that, and and it's just it's just one more thing to kind of kind of balance. But in any case, I'm off topic. Let's get back to what you guys. Were talking. <laughs> that's okay. I'm, I'm fascinated. Um, Michelle, do you want to take the next? These are all just my opinions, anyway. I'm not like researched. Or no, anything. that's that's why we had you on. <laughs> okay. Do you want to take a, a question, Michelle? Um, sure. Uh, do you feel pressure to make produce look a certain way? Um, there's that whole thing right now with like the perfect produce and any blemishes or anything that's like not standard or uniform is kind of you know less than perfect and not ideal. Do you feel any pressure with that um, when you're growing uh, your food? And what do you do with less? than perfect produce? Great question, great question. So yeah, there's been a real arms race in the last decade or two. Um, when, when my dad was uh, started farming, we didn't, we didn't cover um, our produce. Um, there's, a, there's a product out there called Reme or, um, or row covering or, or, or you know, row crop covering or, or whatever. It's just basically like a little light material that goes over it, allows sun and water to go through, but bugs can't get through. By the time I, I came along back on the farm, everybody else was covering, but my dad wasn't. And so we'd, and, and, and by the way, when my dad first started farming uh, vegetables, we didn't have the same kind of bugs. But if you grow vegetables, if you grow it, they will come. Uh, they will find it because that's their food source. And so that's one of the reasons about monocropping that's so tough is if you grow 10,000 acres of one thing, whatever eats that one thing is going to explode. Um, yeah. that's, just, that's just nature. So you want to grow a wide variety of things. It turns out wireworm wants to eat about everything. Um, and then there's flea beetles that kind of will punch holes in kale and, and lots of other things. Um, so we started employing more of it, and I cover a lot of things because, um, yeah, people expect to have food that does not show bug damage. Um, and it's true. And, and if you look at this, do a thought experiment. Put a buggy bunch of kale on a, on a, on a table. Then put a nice bunch of kale. Which one are you going to take? If you're just choosing, if you're at the, if you're at, the, everybody's going to choose the nice one. And I know there's yeah. people who like ugly food. You know, let's defend ugly food. You know, movement, and that's great because it's recognizing the truth, which is food doesn't just naturally come this way. It takes a lot of work to make it look good. There's a lot of energy that goes into it. And I can tell you because I do a lot of shoveling to get that row crop crop on. <laughs> you know, to make sure things are not buggy. But um, so, you know, it's not perfect, right? Bugs still get through and eventually the kale gets too tall and you got to take the remay off. Though we've done it with hoops and you cover and uncover and cover and uncover and it, oh my goodness, it's a nightmare. But, um, you know, it's also part of just like the fun too. I mean, I'm not trying to say, oh, I hate this thing. It's part of the job, you know? <laughs> You gotta you gotta love the process, or or you're not gonna make it. If you only really like the end product of having a nice bunch of kale or carrots or whatever, then it's not for you. Um, That's true. Do you ever find yourself just getting frustrated with people? Like, God, I wish they would just eat this piece of kale. Like, just eat yeah. it. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. and some, you know, and a lot of people like closer to the farm are like, oh, I I like the bugs, and it just reminds me that there weren't chemicals used on it. And I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, that's really nice, but in the long run, people want their stuff to look nice. Um, and and in this way, in this way I'm sympathetic with people who use chemicals. And and let me be clear about this. How many farmers witness their crops get mowed down by insects and just the desire to control uh, would be so strong. They'd be like, okay, I can't take it anymore. 
because it is such a battle with nature. And, and I'm going to give you kind of um, three examples. Um, one is literary. Um, that is the beginning of uh, Fahrenheit 451. Ray Bradbury, he wrote, it was a pleasure to burn. Right. There's something kind of seductive about the use of pesticides because you want to get rid of press. Like there's something Darth Vader said it. You don't understand the power of the dark side. Like there's something really alluring to it. And I had a pastor one time say, if you don't enjoy sinning, you haven't tried the right sins. Right. So there's always <laughs> something kind of enjoyable about about the human desire to dominate nature. It's really yeah. like. I got a neighbor who uses Monsanto corn and, and that, and it's beautiful every year. It comes up like perfectly. And I got my sad sack corn, you know, it's growing, it's imperfect and it's getting battered by bugs and I'm fighting and I'm, you know, and I end up, we always end up getting good corn, but I understand why people pursue this kind of perfection. Mm. And um and it's a human desire and and it's and it's it's to avoid failure and mm. farming is a game of failure and you have to be comfortable with that. So I expect you know I always tell people baseball is like farming. If you fail batting seventy percent of the time, they're going to put you in the Hall of Fame. And that's be that you know like the greatest players are getting a hit three out of ten times. That's yeah. means that. Seven out of 10 times they're not. So in farming, we lose stuff all the time. So like kale, like you to get to circle back like about bugs, this is kind of my perspective on it. If you get obsessive about trying to have always perfect stuff all the time, it takes you to a place that isn't really natural. Like mm -hmm. it is natural for things to be destroyed and, and for imperfection to be there. So we, we do our best to kind of keep the bugs at bay. We accept a certain amount of failure. The stuff that is not suitable or is like too wirewormed or buggy or whatever, we throw on the ground right in the field. So it goes right back into the ground. Um, I always tell people, you know, imagine, you know, when people are harvesting, they, they, they want to be sympathetic to me. So when we have a crew come out, employees or, or work share kind of volunteers, and they say, well, I don't want to short David. You know, I, you know I'll, I'll pick this stuff. I'd eat this. And I think, I always tell them, think of somebody slightly pickier than yourself. And then harvest for that. Know. You know, like most people want the good stuff and you want to make people happy. But you also need to also, part of it is also education by saying, look, if I, by choosing to eat stuff that is just a little bit better managed, you're going to have to accept a little bit more imperfection. So, and I'm, I'm not trying to get too philosophical or psychological here by saying there's there's kind of a need or desire to dominate nature that exists within people, but I think that it's pretty pretty clear. And there's a lot of different ways. I gave you Darth Vader. Um, I gave you Ray Bradbury. Um, but but those kinds of um, those kinds of uh, kind of destructive human Im impulses to kind of you know wrest control away from nature, I think, is pretty strong. Yeah. yeah. Just the desire to have control of the outcome yeah. is so yeah. part of human nature. I didn't yeah. even consider that. <laughs> you got a farmer whose life was kind of dependent on a good corn crop and then watching bugs come in and eat that corn. And then next yeah. year, a guy comes along and says, I got something that'll protect your corn from bugs. Mm. You know, I can see why people yeah. use it. I yeah. can see why people went with it. Um, mm -hmm. They might not have understood the cost, and I think there's other ways to do it. But I think to understand why people make those decisions, like why, why would people grow something like that? What, when it, when it, there's so many kind of 
other problems with it. Well, yeah. it's fear of failure. It's maybe the inability to accept failure um, financially. You're like, I can't, I cannot fail. If I fail, then I'm ruined financially and, and I got to sell the farm. So yeah. there's a lot of different pressures on people to do certain things. And there's also just the way we've always done it. You know, now that yeah. conventional farming is, you know, or, or chemical farming is, is the convention. People have been doing it for generations. It's hard to break with that. So yeah, anyway, for sure. I, I guess, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is one thing that it, when, when we talk about like, you know, you know, organic versus conventional farming, it's important to not draw lines to me anyway. And I don't, I don't know. Other people might feel differently. It's, it's important to kind of keep, keep everybody in the conversation and not, and not draw it up as like mm. a kind of thing. Cause the reason they're doing things is because they experience the same problems you do and they may not, you know, like we direct market and I can talk to my customer base. But if I was selling wholesale, say to Whole Foods and I turn in some buggy kale and they're like, no, you know, yeah. it's, you know, it's, there's, there's always kind of like pressures. Like you were saying, what are the pressures that you feel to produce really nice stuff? And I want to make my customers happy. I also need to educate them that, that perfection is, is the path to the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that perspective. Sorry, my, my son's really into Star Wars these days and. Um, so, oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, so I have, I'm kind of want to circle back to um, like having a relationship with where our food comes from. Cause like when we were doing our food waste challenges, I would like sit with a carrot and be like, I let this go to waste. Like I, you know, so I, was, I would be like trying to think about where it came from, who worked on it. It was so hard to grow it all of these resources went into it and I'm just putting it straight into the garbage can because I didn't plan well enough. My question to you is that as normal people, what can we do to get a better relationship with our food? Um, and I also wanted to see if you had any, um, I, I especially want to be conscious that like we are very fortunate in the Pacific Northwest to have farms like yours. And like a lot of our listeners might be in food deserts, might be in areas that are not as lucky. So like the normal, like everyday people who are not farmers are not next to a farm. They can't do a CSA. Like what do you suggest to those kinds of people that can get a better relationship with their food so that they aren't, you know, having as much food waste? Right. I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of times uh, guilt about food waste is probably being unequally felt by the people who already care. Um, <laughs> what I mean is like, <laughs> I think that's accurate. You know, people who are really um, passionate about climate change are sometimes beating themselves, you know, for forgetting their phone and having to drive back to their house and they're thinking about that extra half gallon of fuel they spent and they're just, you know, beating themselves up about it. And then there's other people who um, are probably doing a lot more things that are not as good and don't care at all. So, you know, sometimes you gotta maintain a little perspective. Remember that you're just one person. <laughs> so don't beat yourself True. up. You know, it's, there, there's a, being conscious of, of food waste is, is a good thing and not wanting to waste the kind of energy that goes in and the kind of things that do that. But but don't bear, don't wear the word, you know, don't put the weight of the world on your shoulders. That doesn't help anybody. That just makes you feel bad. And and we're not 
Mm. Uh, sorry, this is me being philosophical again. We're not meant for that. <laughs> we're not we're not meant to, you know, to that that's that's a heavy yoke to bear. And we shouldn't we shouldn't try to bear that completely ourselves. You know, we're not responsible for the entire weight of the world. We're responsible for our own actions and and perfection again is impossible. So if that desire to be perfect is 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 a good one, but don't let it don't let it, you know, bear you down. Um that's one thing so that happened now, now to get away from my kind of David uh, gets on a soapbox. Um, one thing that <laughs> that that kind of uh, that that's happened in the last 40, 50 years, and by design, is that food has become a less, uh, it's become a smaller portion of our annual expenses. I guess what I mean is we spend less money now annually on food than we used to. Um, that our grandparents, a bigger chunk of their income was spent on food than it is now. Interesting. And and it's got it has to be because I mean, I mean think about it, it's just there's only so much pie. And now rents are three times as what our, our grandparents used to pay. So what 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 do we spend money on less? Well we spend less on food. And food has become cheaper, and that was the design. If you look back at the agricultural uh Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts in the in the mid seventies, he said, Get big or get out. We're gonna drive down the price of food. And that's done through some government programs and kind of encouraging Big farms, big um, and, and cheaper food. So mm -hmm. people, that food used to be more expensive. And I can tell you, if you spend more on money on something, you're more careful about it. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to say go out and buy the most expensive food you can, right? Because on the other hand, it's hard to say people should spend more money on food. And then you say people are already broke. You know, how yeah. dare you suggest that poor people go buy more food that's expensive? You know, so it's it's a tough one. What a society values, uh, they'll spend more money on. Um, so it's food being cheap has a lot of value. Food being expendable or replaceable, there's also a cost to that too. We drove down the price of food, which makes it more... Um, uh, is, is expendable the right word? I don't know. It it's yeah. made it's made it maybe a little less valuable. If 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 you you know really had to work for you know that the you know let's say my kids you know if I get a McDonald's on the road and they take their chicken nuggets and dump them on the bottom of the the floor, um, I'm frustrated but I'm not mad. You know I'm like oh that was a waste. But like if I butchered a chicken and went through all that effort and they and I gave them a piece of chicken and they threw it on the ground, I'd be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Man, so what we spend. That was Bertha. How dare you? <laughs> we've gone through the process of society of making food cheap, abundant, easy. Um, and that kind of has devalued it a little bit. Um, and so maybe that's a little bit of like, well, I'll just get another one or, you know. I'll get more or uh, somewhere else or don't worry about it. So that food waste becomes not as important because there's not the financial impact that it once had. Not yeah. eating the food. A, a picky eater as a child, you know, 70 years ago would be more, it, it's more of a financial waste than it is now. So there might be a little bit of that. And and I don't really have any evidence. I mean, I, I have that little bit of evidence, but again, like this is just my opinion. Um, mm. So that that's part of it. The other side, you know, again, you don't want you don't want to just beat yourself up because, you know, you you let a carton of milk go bad in the fridge or something. Um, being conscious of of your food decision is probably going to guide your actions on a good arc. Think of it as like you know, like what did 
Martin Luther King Jr. say that, you know, uh, the arc of history bends towards justice. Um, I think of it as an arc that way. If we, if we, if we have those kinds of intentions and um, the arc will bend towards uh, a better relationship, but that doesn't yeah. mean that, it doesn't mean that it's now. It doesn't mean it's linear. It's curved. It, it, it approaches it and it approaches it slowly. And yeah, um, that's like there. There's this whole conversation in like eco-friendly spaces. That's like, uh, why are we putting pressure on ourselves when we really should be pr putting pressure on like corporations and government and everything like that? And like, what you do in the home doesn't necessarily matter. Um, versus like everybody else is like, well, but it really comes down to every single person. And so, like, I don't know about Michelle, but, like, I've kind of fallen in this, like, category of being, like, anything that I'm doing consciously in my own home is going oh, to impact my voting. It's going yeah. to impact what news articles I read, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I agree with that because I also think just having self-awareness is a win. I, I mean, I think I talked about it in one episode. Maybe it was, I don't know, it was probably both plastic and food waste, but there was a time I was a blind consumer and I never even paid attention. So I think just bringing attention to things is a win. Like, yeah, yeah. it's just going to be a snowball effect of like progress in your own life. And, but yeah, not to beat yourself up like David yeah. was saying, because I, I really like greater that. than perfection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's very helpful to hear. Cause like, you know, it is our, our podcast is called eco freak out and we do freak out a yeah. lot about a lot of things so <laughs> thank you for you know making us feel a little bit better about that well good yeah yeah <laughs> i i don't i don't know how to how to solve the the food waste problem um i guess i don't know <laughs> uh, it's really yeah. good to hear your perspective though yeah individual or societal that's a tough one i think it's got to kind of come both and and one influences the other i mean I, I guess I still believe we live in a democracy. <laughs> yeah, that we are a government of the people. So you know that what people want will eventually be reflected in the government because what what happens at the in the government um, you know level is is kind of because we allow it as a group. Now it doesn't mean mm -hmm. every individual is happy with what happens. I don't know any any individual who's happy with a hundred percent of the things that are done. Um, True, but but. Uh, if things that are, if things that, you know, were really bad tend to be, or, or totally out of step with what society values, then that tends to kind of get called out pretty quickly. Um, I don't know. I don't, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have kind of your finger on the pulse of anything that is going on in farming in, in those areas that are a little bit like food deserty or like, you know, uh cityscapes like turning things into i don't know pea patches um, that kind of thing there, i mean i've i've i look around and i see that sort of activity happening the fact that people are thinking about it in that way um is a really good sign i mean mm -hmm. people are seeing the value of food and if food is elevated in value that's going to correct a lot of these kinds of problems yeah, for sure. You know, so you know, like how do how do people in inner cities get fresh local vegetables? The one of the one of the things, the criticisms of the CSA farm, and people would say, like, well, you're expensive. How can you feed the poor if your vegetables are more expensive than other food? 
And there's there's reasons for that. And I don't even want to get into like, you know, like, oh, well, you know, you subsidize corn. So Coke is kind of getting the benefit of that. And my vegetables, you got to pay market price. But, you know, other yeah. you know, <laughs> foods that use corn syrup are getting help from the government. So, you know, and then we have a healthcare crisis, even though like so we've we've made bad food cheap and good food expensive and and, and all that. Um, there's. It, yeah, I think it, it, a value shift would probably be a good thing. Sometimes people say, well, you know, farmers should give away excess food to, to things. And, and that's probably part of it. Farmers could be generous. Um, I think also like, yeah, shifting the value so that people would like my, my dad would, would go sometimes and say, hey, you know, talk to the government and be like, we want to find an institutional buyer for a farmer co-op. You know, we want we want the government or or like a locality or a municipality or just a corporation to say, yeah, like a, we're willing to buy your food from your co-op to give, you know, as to, to make available to our employees or, or whatever. Um, in the end, they they really want local food. It is super chic. Amazon, you know, you go to them and be like, hey, you want to buy food for your cafeteria? Or, uh, they probably don't have a cafeteria. They're probably cooler than that. But however they get their food. That would be awesome, but they don't want to pay more. Right. So you got to be able to match the market price. However, and we've talked about the market price, you're, it's not an equal footing, right? So you're starting with disadvantages. Localities like ours have a disadvantage compared to other areas. One for growing reasons, one you know for labor costs, all these other kinds of things that come into it to say, hey, um, sometimes if you want a better product, you got to pay more. We accept this in just about every other part of the world and other parts of the economy. Except for food. food. Yeah. And, and Salatin brought this up. You know, Salatin, you know, Joel Salatin said famously in his book and lots of other places, you know, when he'd have somebody complain that his eggs were too expensive, he would say, hey, what kind of car do you drive? You drive a BMW. Why do you drive a BMW? Because it's better. Mm-hmm. It's better than a Kia or something. Right. So they both get you to the same place, but one's better. And you recognize the value of that car over over something else. So, you know, recognizing that not all food is the same um, has yet to really trickle down to the willingness of people to pay more for it. And ultimately, that goes back to it's a tricky argument because, again, you're saying, you know, the person will come back and say, so you're arguing people should spend more on food. And again, it's a tough it's a tough thing to say, like, yeah, you need to spend more on it. it needs to be a bigger percentage. And that's hard to say to people who are already struggling to, to make ends meet as it is. So I, I recognize that there's a tension there. And it yeah. might just be a suggestion that there's something kind of fundamentally out of whack with our, with our economy, um, that good food is out of reach, that good housing is out of reach. You know, and <laughs> it's easy to just sit back and be like, things sure are bad. You know, right. you, know you want to have a solution at hand. I don't, I don't really have one necessarily. Um, <laughs> David, what do we do? No. <laughs> Tell us what to do. Yeah, my 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 belief about uh, that. No, we were we were talking also about like um, just uh, capitalism and like being busy <laughs> and like working more and more and more and more. So therefore, you have, we have to, to adapt. We ha- we have to make quicker decisions. We don't have as much time to cook, so things go to waste. Convenient purchases. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's. I think it's the, the whole thing. The, the benefit of the system we have is that the way you decide to purchase, the way you decide to do things matters in that, like, you know, the only reason my farm exists is because people have a choice to choose what they're going to eat. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, we, we do have choice, though most people are kind of pushed into a particular decision. There's a, there's a famous economist, right, won the Nobel Prize for a book he wrote called Nudge. There's probably a group of them that wrote it. But how you can get people to do things without mandating it, but by making it a more attractive position. So people have been kind of nudged into this cheaper food, industrial food complex because of the price and because of convenience. And I got to tell people when they join the CSA, I say, it's not convenient and it's not cheap. You're choosing the less convenient, expensive model of food. Yeah. And, and I say that because it's true, but it begs this question of then why are you doing it? It implies that there's another good reason that you're doing it and it has nothing to do with convenience or cheapness. Um, mm-hmm. And that there are other costs to this, and and there are there are other ways. I mean, you could, and there's there's things you can do to kind of nudge people into this better farming model, and that maybe that involves you know um, paying farmers who capture carbon in the soil and can prove it demonstrably with tests. You know, there's things you could do that that would kind of nudge people towards this. It's the same thing of people talking about like, oh, we'll do a carbon tax, and that'll kind of push people away from these intensive models into these other models. So there's ways you could do it with farming. Um, and uh, I'm not a hundred, you know, it's, it, we're, we're, a, we're, a, we're a laboratory of democracy, right? We, we don't, I don't know what's going to work necessarily. Maybe that's the policy that works. Maybe there's another one. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not an economist and I'm, and I'm not a, I'm not a policy setter. I, I think, um, you know, maybe those are things there are there are options out there on the table for what could be done to kind of help farmers, uh, you know, uh, uh, compensate them for the good work they are doing so that the price doesn't have to be totally put on the on the consumer. Right. So that's externalized cost and you have expensive food where the where the costs are fully paid for you know, the consumer is paying for that, that better usage. I had a guy one time and I was like, yeah, our food's more expensive. And he's like, why should I buy your food? And I was like, well, we don't externalize costs. And, you know, like we, we it's, it's good for nature. And he's like, but I'm already paying those costs. I'm already, you know, but me buying expensive food from you isn't doesn't mean that my air is going to be any cleaner. And I was like, wow, that's remarkably cynical. Well done. Um, <laughs> I didn't say that though, because I was in, you know, you know, I was trying to be friendly, but it was kind of like a it was a slap in the face in a lot of ways because it was just like hey uh you know why should i it was really honest why should i spend more and 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 be the and be the the i don't know the, the i mean it's a little bit selfish too like it is making our community's air better like you can't negate that but like your particular air over your house like maybe well that's a tough one to argue so you're like okay so you're saying that you shouldn't spend more because it's not going to do any good for you and yeah ultimately it's like the stance of like why change anything (laughs) let's just carry on as we have been then (laughs) it's kind of like how cynical it is (laughs) there's there's certainly things that that we do on a policy level that kind of encourage um, kind of the industrial model, and a lot of that came from a place a long time ago, out of like um, the problem in the, in the Great Depression. That's kind of when a lot of these farm programs were born, and then they've just kind of continued on in an ad hoc way ever since, and they've kind of ballooned and morphed and gone weird. And you know, it's like a lot of these things are kind of esoteric, and then people are like, 
well, it's in the farm bill. Who wants to take a stand against farmers? No, farmers are like teachers and firemen. Like, you know, we're kind of like a, we're, we're, we're there's a certain like esteem of being like, oh, those are like salt of the earth people. Who would, you know, let's give them, give them more money. Well, I've never gotten a stimulant, you know, like a, a check from the government for being a farmer. It goes to other kind of industrial farms that are kind of set up to, guess what? The people who wrote the programs are the people receiving the money. I mean, like, you know. It's people yeah. who were already connected that kind of get it, but nobody wants to vote against a farmer. Um, but it's uh, it, so I get it. Like these these kinds of bills continue on. Um, it, it's just I don't know. I don't I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> it, it's just it, it's it's like the way the system is is built is kind of um, it favors a particular kind of farm. Like sometimes I'll get an I'll get a call from the from the you know the USDA or something, and they'll be like, "All right, um, in, in the units of 100, how many pigs do you have?" So if you say three, that's 300 pigs. And I can be like, um, point one, I have 10 pigs." And they're like, "Okay, how many acres of carrots do you grow?" Oh, geez, point uh, three acres of carrots. You know, you know like, they're like, "Well, how does this?" I'm like, "You know, I grow a lot of different things, and I grow them on a very small level, but." the way the government thinks about farming is in kind of like these big block terms. Um, They, it's, it's, and I get it. Like they're trying to figure out how many carrots are being produced or whatever. And, and, but they don't, they don't, they aren't really set up to deal with farms. It's so irritating to fill out this paperwork because, you know, they're, they're like, well, what kind of commodities, you know, subsidies do you get every year? And and it's like, yeah, it's just, the way that a lot of these things are set up is that they're not they're and and they're not as nimble as they should be and um and the kind of where the money is at where the support is at and where the vision of the government is at is not for farms that um have hold on a second someone's going to be mad if i say that um <laughs> it's not for, it, but but you know farms that are that are that are attempting to um produce fertility to produce food responsibly tend to be ones that are kind of overlooked because they aren't producing the vast bulk the government has a real interest in mm-hmm. keeping food prices low and uh, because people are happier when the price of a loaf of bread is low the same yeah. thing with gas gas prices go up 50 cents a gallon in a year and people freak out and they blame the president. The president doesn't want to see that. Same thing with the price of bread. You want to keep it low because then people are happy. And Rome used yeah. to do the same thing. Rome, give away free bread, right? You know, keep the people happy because that's a real essential thing that they need. And so I'm not saying that like, again, I don't want to come off and be like, well, people just need to suck it up and pay 10 bucks a loaf of bread. You know, like, okay. I have sympathy for people who are struggling right now to 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 put food on the table as well. Um, I'm just saying that mm-hmm. there are um, uh, there are like uh, there are things that that could be done to kind of nudge us to a better place. And yeah. it's tough to get that through to the people in power because there's not that many farmers. You know, we don't really yeah. make a voting block. It's popular to support farmers, but as long as you're seen as supporting farmers then you get kind of like that good cheer feeling. Like if you say, hey, I support, you know, I don't know, the, the troops, you know, or somebody yeah. else that you tend to be kind of universally kind of 
we we like our teachers and we like our troops and we like our farmers and we don't like used car salesmen and you know like there's kind of like people that like you know you know like the people who are like kind of admired by a society and then there's like you know the tax collectors those are the bad guys yeah um so it's easy but it, it, it's like as so as long as times as politicians are seen as kind of helping farmers then they get kind of the good the good vibes from that i get that get, yeah and, and but but without actually doing some of the harder work of doing things that are actually going to support and they're, kind of farming the they're not going to pay attention to you unless you have like you're selling 50 percent carrots or like they're like oh that's a big chunk let's pay yeah. attention to what this guy has to say but if, if it's like yeah my yeah. my my you know the my economic impact in washington state's relatively small actually um <laughs> So no, no one, no one really, no one really has a, a strong care about what I do because I, you know, like it's harder for me to kind of, you know, rally and 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 uh, you know, like a voice is is a hard thing to have. Um, and, you know, everybody has a voice now. Um, you know, and and everybody always has had a voice, but it's it's tough if you if if you don't have a, a big impact. Mm -hmm. Is there any like closing questions we have for him, Michelle, or like any? Yeah, fire away. Um, yeah, I guess are there any questions you wish we would have asked you, or um, what is at the forefront of your mind when it comes to farming and food waste? I don't know. I, I feel like I I talked a lot about kind of you know food waste off the farm is not really my area of expertise, but um, you know kind of thinking of if food waste. I.e., crops that you grow that never end up on somebody's plate. If that stuff can be beneficial in the fertility realm of farming, so mm -hmm. if farms food and fertility, as long as the food that was produced go back into the fertility size of the equation, it will come back to you eventually. Yeah, farming is, is a game is 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 a game and a and a profession that it, it takes a lot of like. Takes a lot of attempts to get things to go well, and you gotta wait all year to get the next one. So if I'm lucky, I'll get 30 more opportunities to 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 get it right, to get the process right. Yeah. And then that's pretty much it. And that's why farming a lot of times needs to be intergenerational because you start a process and it's hard to see it through. And farming is not scientific. And here's what I mean: is that you can't isolate variables. So in a lab, you isolate a variable. You do an experiment, it didn't work out. You isolate one thing, you change it, you try it again. In farming, it's like, well, I planted that seed and it worked. You know, it, did it work better because we had a giant heat wave in June and it like that plant just loves heat? Or did it work because I amended the soil better or because I weeded it better or because we got like, lucky? Like who's to say? It's just too many. You can't isolate it. So it yeah. takes time to kind of figure out why one thing was successful one time and not another. And um, and a lot of times I just like, well, it's a mystery, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild that you think of like your lifespan and you're like, okay, well, I have 30 more tries to get this right. Yeah. Like that's. That's crazy. I love that. All these failures and things all you know in a diversified farm, it's nice because. Um, you'd say, well, every year there's going to be something that fails and probably multiple things that fail. And then there are always going to be things that tend to do well. That usually is beets and cabbage and no one's that excited about it, but they need to accept it. Beets and cabbage. Yeah. 
No. Um, <laughs> Eat the cabbage. No, I'm just saying that, you know, like, not, but seriously, like some, some things always kind of, you know, things work out well and, and some things don't. And it's hard to know exactly why. But if you're diversified and you don't have all your eggs in one basket, then you aren't as scared as things not going well because something else will usually go well. Um, That's a really good so point. You, you can stay away from the fear aspect that would drive you to kind of take large, maybe less advisable steps to kind of avoid uh, failure. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you lose a third of an acre of carrots, the farm isn't sunk. Yeah. But if you put yeah. all 50 acres that you have into carrots and they fail, then you're sunk. Then you really <laughs> are motivated to keep those carrots safe. Yeah. And then that, you know, yeah. So anyway. That's fascinating <laughs> yeah. to me. Very fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I hope that was interesting. I um and uh, yeah, I hope that I hope it makes sense. Um, it does. Yeah, it yeah. was really interesting. I just yeah. got a text message from Kristen saying that my son is lying in wait for me with his lightsaber. So when I go back in the house, I'm going to get attacked. <laughs> um, so I'm glad to give you the heads up on that because oh, that's um, so good. Yeah, Whew. loving that little lightsaber. He's going to break it. It's going to be sad. Aww. But, you know, it's gonna happen. I just know it. I can tell him this. Like you can't hit things that hard with it. But anyway. <laughs> all right. Well, um, yeah. Thanks for uh, thinking of me and uh, you know um, having me Thank talk. Thank you so much and, for your time. Yeah, Thank you for coming on. And that's it for this episode of Eco Freakout. Yay. Yay! Thank you so much to David Hawkinson yes. for your time and your perspectives on farming and food waste. We're so, so grateful to have had that chat with you. Very appreciate Everyone can find out more about Jubilee Farms on Instagram at jubilee underscore farm. Uh, we also just wanted to say Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Happy New Yay. Year. Yay. <laughs> Yay. May it be better than the last two oh, right the last two <laughs> it will be it will be uh thank you all so much for being a part of eco freak out um we're so happy with this podcast and with our launch and yeah just for you being there for us it just means the world um and quick announcement for january we will be doing a mental health month where we're taking a break off of releasing episodes, uh, but we will be recording our mental health challenge episodes to be released in February. But that doesn't mean that you can take January off from paying attention to us. <laughs> so be uh, sure to follow along on Instagram because all month we will be sharing our findings about mental health and eco-anxiety. Um, we're going to be sharing journal props that you can do as well and be involved in. We would love to hear your feedback. Uh, we're all together just trying to be a good resource for everyone as we navigate into this new year. So if you have any resources or any Instagram reels, any cool things, please send them our way. We will share them in our stories. It's a lot of work to do social media, as everyone knows. So any eyes and ears on any subjects that you think we're interested in, please send them our way. And don't forget to stay in touch. We're on Instagram at EcoFreakOut. We're also, we super appreciate your ratings and subscriptions on Spotify. It helps more people find the show. Uh, thank you to Skylar Yuda for editing the show and for Coyote for supplying our theme music. So until next time, have a great week, everyone, and try not to freak out. <laughs> We're all in this together. <laughs> Bye. Bye.